Acts chapter 17, we're going to read from verse 22 through the remainder of the chapter. Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto silver, or to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, that by that by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Albeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. May the Lord add his own blessing to this reading of his word, for his name's sake. This morning I want us to take for our consideration what Paul says to these people in verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. I want us to think on that thought. He is not far. He is not far. Before we go any further, though, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we would pray that thou was prove indeed that thou art near at hand, that thou art amongst the folks that gather before thee in Jesus' name that thou art going to indeed allow the word to be used of the Spirit of God to speak to such. 
Lord, we pray that you will bless us. We pray that you'll meet with us. We pray, O God, that thou will allow this time to be used for the good of thy people and the glory of our Savior. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We are going to consider this morning what can only be called an astounding statement. Now, in this portion that we read, we have Paul being brought by what most would call a mock arrest. He was not dragged or violently brought to this place, though it does say that they took and brought him to the place. He was brought to the hill in Athens that is called Mars Hill. It is a hill that is so named for Mars, who was supposedly, uh, according to the ancient Greeks, brought to this rocky ridge that faced across from the Acropolis to face the charge of murder. This is said by many historians to be the place of the highest courts of the ancient Greeks. The seat of the judges were carved into stone, and some of those seats are still able to be seen today. It is also in this place that it is believed that 450 years before Paul stood there, Socrates was brought to trial for introducing strange new gods and strange thoughts. It had most likely, by the time that Paul stood there, devolved into just a meeting place for discussions of new things and was not a literal tribunal. This is easily concluded because Paul left that place after speaking to these people without any resistance. The place, though, was not astounding. What Paul said was, he said that God was not far from every one of those gathered. Well, how can that be said? Keep in mind that these people were, in Paul's words, overly superstitious. To be more frank, they were immoral. And they were idolaters of the worst sort. They were thoroughly pagan. And they mocked at the message of the gospel and the resurrection of the Lord. How can it be said that God is not far from them? Well, there is a sense in which God is near to his creation and is the sustainer of all life. In fact, that's what Paul even mentions. But spiritually and morally speaking, there can be nothing more questionable. How can God be near to ungodliness? Well, the question offers even a more fundamental question. How can God be near to any of us at all? How can God be near to any of us? We are so faithless and unbelieving 
We are, despite what we want to think about ourselves, full of sinfulness. How can God possibly be near? Now, this very question that I'm asking is not without outside support. The suggestion that God does not really want to be near to us because we stink so badly of self and sin is well-voiced. And I'm going to suggest to you three witnesses to this suggestion that God is not near. First, that God is not near is not infrequently the conclusion of our own experience. We look through our days. We look at our trials. And we do not see God. We look at our needs and see what we suppose to be want. We look at our distresses and we see what we call heartache. How can God be near? Indeed, our experiences oftentimes witness that God is not near. Well, there's another witness, and that is the devil. The devil also accuses both God and us of being unfaithful to each other. Since you are not faithful, God is offended and he has abandoned you. Or, since God is unfaithful to his promises, he will not answer when you call. I suggest to you that you have heard that claim. It is blasphemy and a lie from the father of lies. But you've heard it. Well, there's another witness. That God is not near is the conclusive testimony of the world. You are looked at, and because it seems you lack, the world around says God is not with you. You know, I just imagine, I like to uh, imagine many things from the scripture, but I can imagine how astute the conclusions seemed to the minds of Job's friends. Oh, we know a lot. Job, we know much, and we have concluded that because you are in this condition, then this must be the situation. How wrong they were. God is far from you. How, long, how wrong they were. So how can this statement of Paul be true? Well, let me say this. Consider that Paul was standing in a judgment arena. It would be a true statement to say that God is near, for he will prove to be a judge that observes all things and knows all things. The deeds of the wicked will be remembered, for God is at hand to note them. Let me say this, and I say beware. The wicked think that God is afar off, and what they're doing is far from the sight of God. That is absolutely not the truth. God, as judge, beholds all things down to the smallest of things, down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. God knows all things. He is at hand even to observe that which is in the hearts and minds and deeds of the wicked. You know, the books are going to be open one day. And it says that the small and the great will be judged out of those books. How would they be able to be judged? Well, because God was at hand to observe. That could be said well. But the point I want us to think about is this. 
Paul's statement is especially true for believers. In fact, some standing in that place could receive the truth that God is near in the fullest sense in which it was offered. He said, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 34. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believe, among which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There were some that believed. There were some that were God's saints. There were some that had been chosen before the foundation of the world. There were some who were of the sheep of the flock that were gathered there. And certainly these words applied to them in the fullest sense. So, my point to you this morning is simply this. It is impossible for the Lord to be anything but near to His believing saints. That is what I would like for us to consider. It is impossible for the Lord to be anything but near to His believing saints. And I want us to think about how this is seen, how this is presented, and I'm going to approach this in a slightly different way. I'm going to let our text stand as a premise. But then we're going to read from other places in Scripture to see how this this is proven. So at this point, I would invite you to turn with me to Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and I'm going to read from verse 22. Here is one way that it is proven that the Lord is near. Matthew 14, verse 22. And straightway... Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. I want you to see first with me that the nearness of our God is seen in His intercession. It is seen in His intercession. The disciples may well have thought in their hearts and maybe even came to the place of questioning between themselves. Why isn't the Lord here? Why isn't the Lord here? Now, you can make much symbolic sense out of the setting. The time was dark. The labor was intense. And the success, their success was minimal. For the whole of the wind was against them. How many ways can you apply that scene to your day and your life. Well the question was. Where is the Lord? 
Where's the Lord? Look at what we're up against here. It's dark. We're laboring with every ounce of strength that we have, and we're getting nowhere. Nothing is seen. Nothing is achieved. We will never get to the place where he has told us to go. We'll never get there. Where's the Lord? We can't do this alone. You say, you don't know that they said that. I can see in their minds. You say, how can you see in their minds that they would have said this? Because this is common to us all. Where's the Lord? We can't do this alone. He said he would help. How are we possibly being helped? Look at where we are. Do you ever hear those kinds of words in your own mind and heart? The point I want to make to you this morning is this. The Lord never left them. The Lord never left them. He was near. While they labored, he was praying. He was not ignorant of them or their hard time. And let me say to you, this is very much the same now. You may find yourself in that place of hard labor, and you're getting nowhere, and you question along with them, I can't do it by myself. He said he's going to help me. Where is he? He brought, oh, look, at, look at where I'm at. Does the Lord pray for us? Let me ask you this. Does the Lord pray for us? Can we answer that? Is that a hard question? Does the Lord pray for us? Well, if you would answer that, I ask another question. If he does pray for us, does that mean he cares? How would you answer those questions? But I don't sense his nearness. But it says in the scripture, when it was the right time, the fourth watch, he came. He came to them on time. My wife's family tells of a little lady that was known in the church she used to be in, the church we got married in, who used to have one thing that she'd like to say, perhaps the only thing that she was able to say as an encouragement to the people of God. I think her name was Bessie. God's on time every time. God's on time every time. Christ was on time for these men. Christ is going to be on time for you, though you perhaps may find yourself in a situation that is very much parallel to these. But don't you think, do not you think, child of God, that because you don't see the nearness or feel the nearness of Christ, that he is not near, that he is not involved with what you're doing, that he is somehow ignorant of all that you're going through. He is in the place of prayer where he prays for his people. And when he's determined it is time for you to know in some manifested way his nearness he will come John chapter 14 verse 18 is an absolute truth I will not leave you comfortless I will come to you so I suggest to you that God proves his nearness to his people first by or in his intercession
put here as, if you would, a subtitle to this point. He comes after praying. I'm going to ask you to look at another portion of Scripture with me to prove another point. That is Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And we read, beginning at verse 37, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Here I suggest to you, you have in this setting a proof of our premise on another point. Not only do we see it in his intercession, but we see it in his intervention. His intervention. The disciples were again in what was to them a time of absolute certainty. I want you to think about this with me. Hang in here with me. The disciples were in a moment to them which seemed everything was absolutely certain. They were certain that everything regarding them was going to end right then. They were positive. Carest thou not that we perish? Oh, you think about this. The waves were sweeping in. And maybe froze them. The vessel was utterly overwhelmed. They were helpless and had no idea what to do. I want you to think about this. The disciples had no idea what to do. They had been out on the sea hundreds of times, thousands of times maybe. They were experienced in how to handle the boat. They knew the sea. They knew the the tendencies of the sea, but now they were in a moment, they say to themselves, we don't know what to do. We're over our head, so to speak, in this experience. And what we know is that things are not about to change. Things are not about to change. But worse than that, the Lord is asleep. The Lord is asleep. Well, what does that mean? What did it mean to them? The Lord was asleep. What did it mean to them that the Lord was asleep that moment as they were finding themselves absolutely facing their demise? Well, I say this, that their conclusion was it must mean one of two things. Either he doesn't care or in this situation, he is unable to help us. This is too big of a mess. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had those kind of situations? Has this ever been the counsel to your own heart? 
I'm in a situation, this is not going to change. I'm over my head. I don't know what to do. The Lord said he's going to help us or help me, but he's not doing that. Either one of two things must then be concluding, uh, the concluding thought. He is either not caring about me for whatever reason, or else he's not able to help me in this situation. Maybe in other things he can help, but not in this one. Indeed, how many moments in life are like this? And then, of course, you have the threefold witness again that we mentioned earlier chiming in. All of them saying the same thing. We perish. All is undone. All is over. All is wrecked. All is a shameful failure. The sunny beginning has an awful ending. But then they came to the Lord Jesus. And what did he do? My point is simple. He was near the whole time. And his faithfulness was not one sliver less than it had been. Now, the situation that the disciples were in really was not what it seemed, was it? The Lord had control over all, and that was not going to be seen in any other way but in what he willed. Their problem was they had no faith. No faith. How is it that you have no faith? You know, there's, the Lord put his finger on what the real storm was that night what the real upheaval was that night, what the real danger to any man perishing was. And that was there was no faith. What was the disciples' failure in this moment? Well, frankly, it was a wrong estimation of Christ. And I'm going to tell you very, blank, very plainly and point blank, this is our failure too. When we find ourselves in these moments when we conclude what the disciples concluded, it's because we do not esteem Christ. We either know too little of Christ or we trust too deeply in ourselves. The Lord intervened. The Lord helped sufficiently in His not time and not a moment too late. So again, if I had a subheading, I would put it this way. He comes after resting. He comes after praying. He calms after resting. But I want us to look at a third portion of Scripture. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And it says there, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who was also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, 
the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came near to him, and to be healed of their diseases, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. I would couple with that portion of scripture this short reading in John chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, where the Lord also speaks of his calling the disciples and how he describes them. He says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So, I would say, third then, that the nearness of the Lord is proven in his invitation. In his invitation. My point is this, that Jesus is always with and near to those that he has invited to himself. To these same men, he says in his parting moments, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Lord will never abandon those that he has called to walk with him or to serve him. A little quick point of theology. When the Lord calls us to walk with him, to trust in him, to believe on him, we call that the effectual calling of God. That means that when the Lord does that work to call, we of necessity... We, by the power of the Spirit of God so working in us, respond to that call, but then, that we do come. That faith is implanted in our hearts, and we call out to Christ and are saved. But the effectual call means that you will come to Him, and then from that moment on you will be near to Him. What's my invitation? Well, you know, the Lord calls us all to follow. He calls us all to be his disciples. So in a sense, we can take these words that he speaks to these men and apply them to ourselves. He will be near to us because he has called us to be those that are his servants, his disciples, his sheep. But it very well may be that a call to his disciples uh, may not be the only kind of call that the Lord issues to the hearts of men. He may make a call to leave your misery. This is sort of on the other end of the spectrum. Matthew 11 and 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, when the Lord calls you to come to him, this is our memory verse, is it not? That we should have repeated this morning, but I think you'll do your memory work later. To come to the Lord Jesus, as he says, is a call by the Lord Jesus, not only to find rest, but to find the nearness of Christ as your perpetual blessing. An invitation to rest 
is an invitation to the everlasting presence of the Lord Jesus. Do you know that? Have you thought about that? When the Lord says, come to me, he doesn't say, okay, now you've been with me long enough, go away. That's not the way it is. The Lord is near to those that he calls. To follow Jesus is to be with Jesus. And I say it is also a great note that the Lord presents his nearness in terms that also goes the other way. He says, not only do I call, and that proves that you will be near, but I will tell you something else. That when you call, it will also show the nearness of the Lord. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them, to all them. He is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. My wife hates it when I do this, but as I was walking downstairs to go to my study this morning, she quoted that verse to me, and I just smiled. You'll hear it later. (laughs) You'll hear it later. That's exactly the truth, though. When he calls us, it's a a call to be near the Lord. And he says, I want you to also know that if you call, I will be near. The invitation of Christ for us to come to Him is an invitation for us to be perpetually near Him. And I have a fourth reading, and this will be my last. If you look with me at John chapter 1, we read it this morning, but we're going to reread it. I was thinking of it. I wanted us to read it to begin this service. John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want you to think about one other portion, speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Those verses I suggest to you present to us another truth about the nearness of God and how it is proven. And that is, it is proven forth in His intention. In His intention. It is the intention, or we might say the purpose, of God to redeem from sin all those that by the will of God Receive the Lord Jesus. 
the statements of Scripture, many of which are prophetic, are that those who are redeemed are those who will know the perpetual presence of Emmanuel. Again, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. In other words, he, the Redeemer, cannot be divided from those that he has redeemed. By his union with his people, the redeemed, there is a nearness, a oneness, a unity that lasts everlastingly. And indeed, such are the pictures of Christ to us. We read in the scripture of the, of the shepherd who cannot leave the, leave the sheep, the bridegroom that cannot but be near to the bride, the head, the head of the church, which cannot be separated from the body. My point to you is this, that by eternal covenant, the Lord Jesus is bound to be near to those that are his. That eternal covenant, the covenant of life, the covenant of righteousness, the covenant of dwelling with God forever. John chapter 14. The Lord Jesus speaks about where he is and we might be also. John chapter 17. He prays to the Father that where he is, these that are given to him may also be. The eternal covenant of God is that the Lord Jesus would redeem a people, but not just to redeem a people so that they might be redeemed and scattered, but that they would be near to him, with him, everlastingly, that where he is, we might be also. So my point, then, again, that Paul makes, when he makes this over, overwhelming statement, that he is not very far from every one of us. For some, he is very near as judge. But for the rest who believe in him, he is there as the one who is redeemer, who will dwell with him everlastingly. Again, the point is that the Lord is not very far from every one of us, as Paul says. And I say to you this morning, here's a place to rest. But what about... When we sin. What about when we sin? Well, I will say plainly, it may be that the Lord's face may not be seen for a time when sin is embraced. But I would put up against that question this, Ephesians 2 and 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Does not Calvary cover it all? Does the blood of Jesus Christ not cleanse us from all sin? Oh, you're not far away. You may have to be uh, one whose eyes and thinking are adjusted. But he's not far. And though you have many witnesses that would suggest to you the opposite, and though we have noted instances where it seemed the Lord was far, it is not true. It is not true. And my point then again is this. You have a place where you can rest. You have a place where you can rest. You will everlastingly, unendingly, invariably be close 
to the heart of Christ. He is near to every one of us. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that you will bless the word. We pray that you will use it within us. We pray that you will allow it to be that which truly speaks to us and causes us to stay our minds on Christ and stay our minds on what he has said. He will both be to us and how he will be found of us. Lord, now I pray that thou will go with us from this time, keep our hearts and minds through the power of the Spirit of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.